a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Four cars are parked on the streets of London, fake license plates on the bumpers, kitchen timers ticking in their back seats. The cars are a message waiting to be delivered from the Provisional Irish Republican Army, a.k.a. the IRA, to the British Empire. And at 3 p.m. London time on March 8th, 1973, the message will be delivered with a bang. 200 pounds of explosives in each car will erupt in a fiery cloud of shrapnel and shattered glass. And the conflict between Irish Republicans and British loyalists will finally be brought to the capital of England. With the detonation of these bombs, IRA member Dolores Price and her accomplices hope to put fear into the hearts of an occupying force. She's willing to risk the deaths of hundreds of innocent men, women, and children. She'll go as far as it takes to free her people from Britain. But if Dolores is caught, how far will they go to pay her back for her crimes? I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I think today people for the most part take for granted that Ireland and the United Kingdom are just two independent nations living next door to one another in peace. But that hasn't always been the case. When you look closer at the island of Ireland, you see the scars of past conflict. The island of Ireland is split into two different countries. There's the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland is actually a part of the United Kingdom, along with England, Scotland, and Wales. And the Republic of Ireland is, in fact, its own country. But it wasn't always like that. In 1918, all of Ireland was under British rule. But in a war for independence, the Irish took back most of their land, but not Northern Ireland. And the seed of that war for independence stayed with the people for decades after. Irish Republicans, which is to say supporters of the Republic of Ireland, not like the American Republican Party, they remained bitter that they couldn't take back the rest of their land. And now that land is populated with Protestant Brits. This division between Ireland and Northern Ireland set the stage for a decades-long conflict known quaintly as the Troubles. And it might be a quaint name, but it describes a very real, violent part of history. The Troubles left some 3,600 people dead and also left more than 47,000 people injured. It's crazy. It's insane. I mean, it's, I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom. During this time, there was Molotov cocktails that were thrown into the streets. 
There were regular shootouts between the Irish Republican Army, a.k.a. the IRA, and the British Army. There were car bombs that were regularly detonated everywhere. Northern Ireland was an absolute battle zone. When you describe it that way, I, I take issue with them not workshopping the name for a little bit longer. The Troubles, you know? It, to it, me, I it's just... very Irish. No, it's very Irish where it's like, you know what? We're going to repress it. <laughs> if they tell you something's a disaster, I really wonder what that would You're look worried. Like. No, it's, yeah. it's a, if it's a disaster, it's actually gone. <laughs> it's actually no longer existing. The Troubles, you're like, ooh, something's not okay here. At the beginning of this chaos of the Troubles in the 1960s, Dolores Price comes of age in Belfast, which is the capital of Northern Ireland, and she's born into a long line of staunch Irish Catholic Republicans. Her dad, Albert Price, is known to have detonated one of those car bombs in Britain in the 1930s, and he served time in prison. Her mother, Chrissy Price, she did time too. So did Grandma. Her aunt Bridie nearly killed herself for this cause. Just every adult in Dolores' orbit has sacrificed something enormous for Ireland. And this is also all she's exposed to growing up. I mean, think about it. Her mom, her aunts, her dad, her whole family has been telling her about the struggle for Irish independence. And so she didn't hear tales of like Little Red Riding Hood or the Big Bad Wolf or, you know, the Three Little Pigs. No, she heard stories of her dad and his friends fighting for their independence against the oppression of the British Empire. She hears from her family that their home country has been occupied by this oppressive regime. She's also heard stories of her parents' friends being hung for trying to fight for its independence. This is her family's truth. This is the world that she is being brought up in. And a big lesson that stays with her is no loss is too great in the fight for independence. And she's also living through injustice as well, because to be Irish Catholic Republican in the capital of a Protestant British state, that equals discrimination. The British banned the display of Irish flags and symbols of independence. Irish Republicans are blocked from public office, and they struggle to get jobs, to get housing. They're forced into poverty. They're watched closely by the police, and they are abused by their loyalist neighbors. From where they sit, they are second-class citizens in their own home. The tales of dissent and family lore of freedom fighting instills confidence and courage in Dolores. I mean, she comes from a very strong line of fighters. And it also instills this deep sense of duty. And it's not just tales, right? It's not just stories. She sees and experiences the sacrifices her family makes every single day. Decades ago, her aunt Bridie worked with the women's branch of the IRA. And one day, she was sent to escort an IRA man assigned to transport explosives. But he never shows up to do the job. And she decides, all right, I'll do it myself. And just as she reaches for the delicate materials, the bomb suddenly goes off. She lost both hands and both eyes, and her face was badly disfigured. She was 25 years old at the time. As long as Dolores can remember, her aunt lives in her parents' home, along with her whole family. And it's Dolores' job to help take care of her. 
She feeds her Aunt Bridie. She even goes as far as to light cigarettes and place them in her Aunt Bridie's mouth so she can smoke them. She says she hates that job, but in doing all of this, it's a constant reminder of the sacrifices that these people have made for the independence. Aunt Bridie never complains about her disfigurement, her struggles, and she's as staunch a Republican now as she ever was. Dolores' father, mother, and her aunt have given everything for this cause. She has hoped that their struggle will one day pay off and that the sacrifices they made will feel worth it. Republicanism, even more than Catholicism, is her religion. But what makes her different is she doesn't believe that violence is the answer. She's skeptical that violence is bringing about any change. So she's trying to find another way through her fight for independence. She sees a different future for the Republican movement. In 1965, when civil rights marchers walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, Dolores Price is amazed. That march and the outrage the police response caused inspires Dolores and hundreds of other Republicans in Northern Ireland to fight back against discrimination with nonviolent protest. The Republicans in Ireland see themselves in the civil rights movement happening at the same time in the U.S. Martin Luther King Jr. is a massive inspiration to them. In January of 1969, 18-year-old Dolores and her sister Marion join a civil rights march. You can actually hear the crowd in this old recording of the march from the South Antrim Sinn Féin YouTube channel chanting the very same songs that were sung in Alabama, We Shall Overcome. Some 500 Irish Republicans march across Northern Ireland, 70 miles from Belfast to Derry, the two largest cities. Their cause is jobs and equality under the law, and they are determined to make change without car bombs and Molotov cocktails. And as much as Dolores respects her family's struggle, their violent movement failed to make any progress in Northern Ireland. So she and the other young revolutionary Republicans believe that persistence and voting power can achieve the same ends that the civil rights movement achieved. According to some historians, some of the protesters in this march are even hoping that they'll be met with violence and they'll be assaulted and beaten during the march, similar to the American civil rights marchers at Selma. The way they see it, if it turns violent and they get photos and there is press coverage, it might sway public opinion in their favor. On the first three days of the march, Dolores and her marchers face no violence. They might be turned away town after town because they don't want protesters, you know, blocking their streets and chanting slogans and holding signs. But for the most part, they're able to slowly make their way through the country peacefully. That's not to say it's all peaceful. Counter-protesters line the roads around them and are shouting at them. Many are led by a Protestant preacher named Reverend Ian Paisley. In a video posted by Al Jazeera, you can hear how impassioned an orator Ian Paisley was. Let it go out that we are cool, cold, determined loyalists who will never surrender. 
And on the fourth day, as the Irish March for Civil Rights nears its end, a police brigade stops the protesters with a warning. An armed counter-protest is waiting for them ahead. If Dolores and the others press forward, they might be stoned and beaten. The leaders of the march announce the news with a megaphone, promising that the police have offered an escort and that they will make it through safely if they are careful. Here is more of the recording from that march. Police have said they are quite prepared to get us through this obstacle. We keep in close formation on the right-hand side, under the edge, keeping well into the right-hand half of the road. Then we should be okay. Dolores and her friends aren't deterred by the threat of violence. She believes in what she's doing. So she and the marchers continue to press on. But as you can hear in this recording, they walk straight into a trap. Just as they reach a bottleneck leading to a bridge, the counter-protesters come over the hills on either sides of the road, and they throw stones at Dolores and her comrades. They ambush them with bats that have nails hammered into them. The police who are supposed to escort them block the bridge with their patrol car. Many of the fighters are actually off-duty officers. Dolores and Marion are forced to flee into the river beneath the bridge. And as she's wading through the cold river with her sister, trying to get away from the violence, Dolores meets the eyes of one of the counter-protesters. And she recalls how she sees pure hatred in their eyes. As her friends and fellow Republicans are just beaten to hell by Reverend Paisley's army of loyalists, Dolores realizes, you know what? After seeing that look in that man's eyes, I'm never going to change these people's minds. Not this way. Not without war. Some historians believe that this moment marks the beginning of the Troubles. I think it's really interesting that she tried so hard to make the fight nonviolent for this next generation of people fighting for independence from England to make um, Northern Ireland a part of Ireland. And I think it really speaks to the reach that the civil rights movement in the U.S. had to the world, that they were able to find that language of protest and share it. But I keep thinking about the Irish struggle and what that looked like. And it's almost like if after the American Revolutionary War, you know, England was like, all right, you can have the rest of the country, but New England will be a part of the UK. And I can't imagine that we would stop fighting for independence if that was the case. But can't we just give peace a chance? That's that's what I kept feeling watching the documentaries on this was I was just so anxious the whole time, especially when I saw footage of those homemade bats with nails sticking out of the end. I was like, Ooh. I really hope that's a talking stick they're going to pass around. <laughs> Everyone gets a turn to say what they have to say. That wasn't so. But can't they just organize a town hall or something? They couldn't get jobs. Like, they couldn't even have – they couldn't even – they didn't even have a seat open for them at the table, Mm -hmm. right? It felt like they had no option but to fight. So Dolores Price, who once doubted violence was the way forward, is now hardened by the violence that she's encountered all over Northern Ireland in the months that follow. In Derry in 1969, a five-day standoff between police and rioters ignites a hotbed 
of said violence. Really, all hell just breaks loose. The police have just made their first pattern shots. They're now inside the bogside area. As the crowds are pushing them back, there's been a, another fusillade of stones flying into the police. They so far are standing their ground, but for the first time, they've taken to throwing the stones back into the crowds. Things become so heated that the British deploy 7,500 soldiers in Northern Ireland to stop all this violence. But to Dolores, they're more like the police officers in the American South. They're not going to stop the violence. They're going to... It's escalating. ...bring with them new violence. It's escalating. They're beating them down, trying to keep them in their place. Dolores realizes that nobody is coming to save them. She's going to have to save them herself. So at this point, if the British are bringing their heavy guns and artillery to Belfast, then Dolores intends to match them. The new IRA begins to take form in 1970. It's called a Provisional Irish Republican Army, meant solely for the purpose of battle with the UK. They call it Provost for short. And Dolores' hometown becomes a hotbed of Provost activity. Her dad, Albert, joins up and invites members into their living room for strategy meetings. Another home in the neighborhood becomes a de facto explosive factory, where the provost manufactures bombs and trains provost members to handle them. But the British Army isn't blind to the revolutionary attitudes that are going on here. So they're raiding homes, they're arresting suspected dissidents, and they continue the long thread of persecution that Dolores grew up with. The enemy, in doing so, is just fanning the flames of revolution. And provost membership, as a result, skyrockets. And you know who's right there along with them? Dolores. Dolores. She's outraged by the British takeover, and she's determined to fight and die for her people, like the generations of people before her. So she stands in her living room with her right hand up, and she recites the Declaration of Allegiance. I... Dolores Price promised that I will promote the objectives of the IRA to the best of my knowledge and ability. And when Dolores signs up with the provost, she does not have any intentions of wrapping band-aids around people or doing other lady jobs. She's like, listen, I can do anything a man can. I'm the legacy of a major Republican family. So come on, give me the good stuff, not just the busy work. And they're like, okay, no problem. We have a really important job for you. Here you go. And they stick her in a room to clean and polish rusty bullets. She's pissed. I don't she blame her. She wants to fight. I she wants to carry her. that gun. She wants to set bombs. She wants to do whatever it takes. But she takes that oath to follow orders very seriously. So for now, these are just going to be the shiniest bullets you have ever seen. And she's eventually promoted from bullet polishing duty, and she uses her charm and her cool attitude where she begins to transport explosives across the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Five days a week, Dolores, under the fake name Rosie, drives a car through a British checkpoint, and the car doors are just packed with explosives. She would have to calmly sit there, inches from those explosives, answering the guards' questions. 
you know, it's easy enough for her to explain. She lives in Northern Ireland, but she works in Ireland like a lot of people do. And actually, over time, she even forms a pretty friendly relationship with the border guards. So, you know, she's driving up and they're like, oh, hey, Rosie. Dolores successfully transports hundreds of pounds of explosives into Northern Ireland, and no one is ever the wiser. After a year with the provisional IRA, Dolores is promoted again to the intelligence team. She's moving up the ranks. She's proven herself to be a savvy and sharp member, but her job is about to get much darker. Those very shiny bullets that she polished... They're being fired in standoffs between the IRA and the British Army. The explosives are being detonated in Loyalist neighborhoods. They're killing British soldiers and Loyalists. Enemies, sure, but innocent people are also getting caught in the crossfires. So far, Dolores has only helped transport the explosives and polish the bullets. She is not the one firing them. But as a newly instated intelligence officer... Dolores joins a team of provost soldiers called the Unknowns. She takes on a job that involves more than just transporting munitions. Her job is now to weed out snitches and informers in the IRA's ranks and deliver them to justice, which means execution. The process isn't as chaotic as you might think. Dolores and her partners, they'd arrive at the home of a suspected spy. They'd tell them, oh, you you get to have leave right now because from time to time, the IRA would actually send their members on vacations when they could. So they wouldn't suspect something. It wasn't strange. Then Dolores would drive them to the border of Ireland where another car would pick them up for their vacation, which unbeknownst to them was a vacation from life because... Like Carrie said, snitches don't get stitches, they get gravestones, and they would be subsequently killed. Usually she is just the chauffeur leading folks to their grave, but in at least one case, Dolores and two of her partners had to perform an execution at an unmarked grave. And they do this thing where they mimic uh, firing squad rules in that they're all going to fire a bullet into the back of this man's head so that no one is actually sure who fired the shot that killed him. It also gives them plausible deniability because they can say, we don't know who killed him. Mm -hmm. In 1972, Dolores picks up a suspected spy named Jean McConville. A little bit about Jean McConville. She is a widow with 10 children in a dilapidated apartment in Belfast. So she gets there and they tell the kids that their mother is going to be right back. They're only just going to take her for an hour. Now, Jean McConville, for her part, she thinks she's being smuggled across the border and that her kids will be brought to her after the fact. And as Dolores drives Jean to the border, she hears Jean say from the back of her car, I knew those provost bastards didn't have the balls to kill me. And Dolores just sits there in silence, knowing that the very provost bastards that Jean is referring to are there in the car with her hearing her say that. When Jean leaves Dolores' car that night, she's never seen alive again. Her 10 children, yes, I said that right, 10 kids, are left all alone. I have to comment, in the documentary that we watched, we heard 
Dolores talk about another story where she took a man who knew he was going to be executed. And she recalls sitting in the car with him and she had this moment where she goes, why doesn't he hit me over the head? Why doesn't he try to get out of the car? Why don't I take him somewhere so that he can escape? She had all of these thoughts going through her head, but she comes to the realization that everybody believes in the cause so much that this guy knew his fate and she knew her duty to the job and they just went along with it. Yeah, it's like no one needs to be there to oversee it for it to even happen and they're just both going to play along because it feels like in situations like this, it's almost too scary to give that extra minute in the moment to think for yourself or to act like you have the ability to make any of your own decisions. If you if you continue to say to yourself, just follow the order, just follow the order, just fit into the spot that they've put you in, don't question it, then you're able to kind of distance yourself more and more from what role you are playing and what is actually happening. Well, it's like you're serving a greater purpose, right? They're like, all of this is to get independence, which will help future generations. And again, no sacrifice is too great to make that happen. And I think like, but it's so chilling that like people are doing horrible things and just like, it's a part of their duty. It's a part of their job. Yeah. And I don't know how you don't just say to yourself at points, um, you know, looking in the rearview mirror at a widow or whoever, you know, if she's alone with somebody, this guy, is there not a moment where you're like, you know, this isn't going to make or break whether we succeed. And I would love to not be part of this murder. It's interesting, though, too. I mean, I mean, we've we have a podcast that talks about true crime, but oftentimes war is not typically discussed in this type of platform. Like it's a separate thing entirely. And in my opinion, it's just it's not. I mean, the waters get really muddy because there's violence on both sides and war is more socially accepted, but it's like, there's a lot of crime that happens in war, but for some reason it's like accepted. I don't know. It's a wild thought. Yeah, it's definitely put in a different box. On January 30th, 1972, three years after the civil rights march that kicked off the troubles, a huge mass of peaceful protesters gather in Derry. 15,000 people marched, even though protests had been banned by then by the British. You can hear them in an archival video found on Perseus 999's YouTube channel. At around 3 p.m. that day, the protesters are directed towards a blockade, and that's when things get heated. Armored police are waiting for them, and they don't intend on letting the march go on any further. Bottles and rocks are thrown from the crowd, and in return, police fire tear gas and rubber bullets to disperse the protest. But that only makes things worse. What started out as a peaceful protest becomes a battlefield in the war, as you can hear in the recording. The British paratroopers load their guns with live rounds and begin shooting into the crowd. They claim that they were fired upon first, but eyewitnesses say they just started firing. 108 rounds are shot into the crowd. 13 people are killed in the street. Another will later die of their wounds. 
and 14 others will be critically injured. This massacre is known today as Bloody Sunday. When the news of the Bloody Sunday massacre reaches Dolores, she is furious. And she begins to think about all the suffering that her friends and family and the people of Ireland have been through. All of the violence has taken place in Ireland and Northern Ireland. The English haven't had to reckon with the violence in their streets and in their homes. And Dolores thinks it's about time that message was brought to England's doorstep. In response to the Bloody Sunday Massacre, Irish Republicans burned down the British Embassy in Dublin, Ireland. And Dolores comes up with a plan to bring the Troubles to England. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Dolores brings her plan to the top brass in the provost. She wants to launch an offensive in the heart of Britain, and she's willing to lead it herself. A meeting of IRA members is called to assemble a team, and dozens of young volunteers gather in a house in Belfast. A high-ranking member leads the meeting. They are looking for volunteers for this special mission. But it's not just any mission. It's a hanging job. The kind of operation that could lead to a death sentence. The leader of the meeting tells all of the volunteers in the house, if you're not ready to face the full wrath of the British state, then leave now. And many of the people do. They walk out of the house in staggered groups so that they don't draw any attention with this mass crowd, this mass exodus. And as the boys walk out, 22-year-old Dolores reportedly teases them. She says, don't knock me down in the rush, lads. The people who are left in the room are briefed on the plan. The provost wants to plant car bombs around London, and not just anywhere. They want to hit England where it hurts. At the police headquarters, an army recruitment office, the British Forces Broadcasting Service, and the Central Criminal Court. For the past three years, car bombs have been used to target commercial centers to weaken the Northern Irish economy. 
but the effects hurt loyalists and Republicans just the same. None of it really truly hurts the real enemy, which in their eyes is the British. It's easy to wage a war when it's far from your doorstep, so Dolores wants to make the war feel real to Britain. She wants to shake up their sense of security and put the suffering of the Irish people into perspective for them. The only way that she knows how to do that is through extreme violence and intimidation. Dolores is leading this mission with her sister and a man named Hugh Feeney as her lieutenants. The youngest member of their team is just 18 years old. And the oldest is 29. At the beginning of 1973, Dolores and her team steal six cars at gunpoint in Belfast and drive them across the border into Ireland. They're repainted, given fake license plates and registration stickers, and each car is loaded up with 200 pounds of explosives under the rear seat. The first three cars are ferried across the Irish Sea to England, and they make it through customs without any problems. The fourth... Not so lucky. It's held up by Border Patrol. There's something wrong with its license. The border agents think that the driver is trying to evade import tax. He has no idea about the explosives hiding in the car. The youngest of the unit, Rasheen McNearney, is 18 years old and she is in the backseat of the car. She's not used to doing covert military operations. She's only just joined the Provo six months ago. And she's fidgeting. She's terrified of being caught. And she's just desperate to escape this whole interaction. So she announces that she just needs to use the toilet and she gets out of the car. By the time Rasheen returns, her car and the fellow volunteers she was working with are being ushered through customs just because of dumb luck. A truck held up the customs line that the border agent had been called away to deal with. After that near miss, Dolores sends a message back to Ireland that the last two cars should just stay back. It's too risky to bring any more. Four cars, it's going to be enough. On March 8th, 1973, Dolores and her team wake up just before dawn and park the cars in front of their four targets. Each car is strapped with 200 pounds of explosives. It's large enough to kill hundreds of people and injure many more. Alarm clocks are rigged up to the bombs, and they're set for 2.50 p.m. So Dolores and her team can fly back to Ireland before these bombs even detonate. By 7.30 in the morning, they're headed to the airport, and most of their flights are between 11.20 and 12.30. So far, everything has gone off without a hitch. The cars are parked. They're abandoned. And hours go by without anyone noticing a thing. Little do Dolores and her comrades know, but they're about to be sold out by their own side. An informant in the highest ranks of the IRA makes a phone call to British intelligence to warn the London police that car bombs are being planted around the city. Officers are immediately deployed to search for suspicious vehicles. But as soon as they step outside their very own headquarters, they see an unwelcome surprise. They notice a car there. It has no tax disc, which is a sticker on the windshield proving that the vehicle tax has been paid. And then they go around back and they notice that the car's license plate is secured with twice as many drill holes as there ought to be. I'm super impressed they noticed that, the number of drill holes, but I guess that I, that's probably in their job description. The two men get up close to the windows of this car, though, and peer inside. 
And that's when they immediately spot a thin white cord under the carpet on the floorboard. They realize they're pressing their face up against a bomb. The British bomb squad is called to the car immediately, and they pretty quickly confirm that this is much more than a tax-evading Ford. Once the doors are opened, they can hear the ticking alarm clock. Packed beneath the seats of the car, police find, quote, a monstrous, tremendously powerful bomb. They start to work, trying to deactivate the bomb, and while working, they look up above them and they see windows of the surrounding buildings are filled with faces of people looking down, watching them as they work. A member of the bomb squad yells up, get those stupid bastards away from the windows. They also notice that the timer is set for many hours, which means whoever planted it gave themselves enough time to escape. So they immediately close the airports and they question all Irish nationals trying to leave the country. And also they search the city for more car bombs. Around 2 p.m., a young reporter named Elizabeth Curtis answers her phone. The voice on the line has a thick Irish accent. And without explanation, he rattles off the make and model and location of the four cars. When the reporter realizes what she's hearing, she writes down everything she can. The call ends with the Irish voice saying, The bombs will go off in one hour. So journalists are sent out to the four locations and they call the police. I mean, they're not going to go to a bomb without probably some police escort. Seems like a smart thing to do to call the police. And then they wait in anguish for the bomb squads to arrive. And even when they do, there isn't really much time. The police suspect that the bombs are set to go off at around 3 p.m. as the first alarm clock indicated. But it's well past two. This is a movie, right? Is this speed? This is so exciting. I just can't believe how down to the minute it is. Bomb squads are able to defuse the bombs set in front of the police headquarters and the broadcasting service, but then the other two bomb squads are just sweating bullets in front of the courthouse and the army recruiting office. Folks in the area are quickly evacuated. A murder trial and drug conspiracy case is happening, they have to put it on hold. Someone runs into the courthouse and yells that everyone has to take cover. And instead of running, the drinkers in a local pub hunker down with their pints as they wait for the cars to blow. I mean, listen, I guess if you're gonna go, you gotta go doing what you love, which is drinking a pint in a pub. And then, just before 3 p.m., a school bus filled with 49 kids drives right by the bomb squad. A horrified officer sprints to the bus and tells them to run. Get the hell out of here now. The clock strikes three and boom. It's like two meteors hit London directly. Everything shakes for miles around them. People are swept right off their feet. Glass shatters, slashing faces and inciting massive panic. When the bomb exploded, there were bodies and PCs lying in the street. Uh, Members of the public were obviously very badly injured. I tried with others to apply pressure points and fix tourniquets to injure parts of the body. One uh, chap I remember clearly had a very bad gash in his groin and blood was pouring out. Policeman, was he? Yeah, he was a policeman. You must have been feeling... Almost 250 people are injured. And miraculously, 
nobody is killed by the bombs. I mean, I think the story of people sitting in the pub and not evacuating when they're told, I think speaks to the massive difference between what's happening in England and what's happening in Northern Ireland. In Northern Ireland, they're in the midst of battle. Like, violence is around the corner. They're used to what it's like being amongst bombs and Molotov cocktails and shootouts. And in England, they're like, I think I'll just be fine if I stay here with my pint. I think it's just like such a perfect indication of how different their lives must have felt. Yeah, but they weren't fine. So many people were injured. It's, uh, you know, it begs the question, where's Keanu when you really need him? It's so wild to me. They knew those bombs were going to blow up, but they couldn't defuse them in time or put like, I don't know, like um, a bomb blanky on them to absorb the force. Are you calling dibs to trademark that right now? Is this your request for patenting for bomb blanky? I bet it's already made because I think we would have handled it differently now. I think there was just different tech available at the time. And now I'm sure bomb blankies are sold at a Walmart near you. It cut to commercial for bomb blanky. Yeah, we're now sponsored by Bomb Blanky. What a great name. I don't know. My, my point is I don't think that that would have gone down the same today or or if it had happened under Keanu's watch. The first round of bombers make it all the way to their gate and some even make it onto the airplane before they're apprehended by police. When asked about the bombs, they stonewall. No one has a cover story because no one expected to be caught. Dolores and her sister Marion and their co-conspirator Hugh Feeney are scheduled to take a flight at 12.30. Everyone else was supposed to have flown out a little earlier at 11.20. But when the three of them enter the terminal, officers are waiting. Are you flying to Dublin? One of the officers asks. Would you mind coming with me? Dolores and her comrades are brought to the police station. They're immediately stripped and searched. Their clothes are sent off to be tested for bomb residue. And they're offered these ratty blankets to cover their naked bodies, but Dolores refuses to wear them. She says it's too dirty. And so she walks around completely naked around the police department, which feels like such a power move. They're held for four days before Dolores' mother comes to see her. Dolores can feel her eyes start to well up with tears. This is the first time she's really feeling the emotions of what's happening to her come to fruition. Her mother hugs her and she whispers in her ear, don't let them see you cry. So Dolores holds them back. She stays strong. But one of her co-conspirators didn't stay so strong. Rasheen McNearney, the 18-year-old member of their team, cracks under the pressure of police interrogation. She confesses to everything and strikes a deal with the British police. She would testify against her friends in exchange for immunity. She's the only member of the operation who would get off scot-free. At trial, her co-conspirators hum the dead march as she walks through the courtroom. Hugh Feeney even throws a coin at her and says, here's your blood money. Even the judge presiding over the trial acknowledges that he doesn't know what dangers await for her on the outside. As far as we know, she went into hiding. She has never been heard from again. But before vanishing, her testimony condemned Dolores, her sister Marion, and Hugh Feeney to 20 years. Dolores and her sister are in fact deemed so dangerous that they're sent to a high-security all-male prison in England. 
I got to admit, I do not understand why that would make folks feel safer or why that would help. From the very beginning of her sentence, Dolores writes to her mother that she and her sister Marion are going on a hunger strike. They won't eat until they've been transferred to a prison in Northern Ireland, specifically Armagh, where her grandmother, mother, and aunts all served their time. Staying in a prison in England just adds insult to injury. And if they die, at least their bodies will be shipped home for burial. She writes, we will be back in Northern Ireland one way or the other by the new year. But the British authorities won't allow this, dead or alive. After several days of the hunger strike, Dolores is brought from her cell to a medical room. She's tied down to a chair with leather straps on her feet, hands, and forehead. A wooden piece with a hole in it is forced into her mouth, and a tube connected to a funnel of liquidized food is plugged into that. So she's being force-fed. And sometimes they would vomit into this tube. Sometimes the officers turned the radio all the way up to drown out their screams. Let's call it what it is. Torture. It's absolute torture. I think it's also worth noting, since we're here at Talk in History, um, a hunger strike was used when women were fighting for the right to vote in England. And controversially, they were also force-fed. And it's just the most horrific thing. And I think also I just wanted to highlight it because, again, it's this other shared language of protests that protests repeat itself. Now, after the first force feeding, Dolores meets Marion in the exercise yard and tells her what they did. Dolores says she doesn't think she can do it again. She doesn't think she can endure the torture of the force feeding again. Marion tells Dolores that she can stop the strike, but Dolores stays strong. She says no. They do it together or not at all. And soon Marion, too, is subjected to the same torture. Dolores writes to her parents frequently, describing her strike. And their parents are heartbroken and worried about their daughters, but also they're proud of them because in their eyes, they've raised Republicans who are doing right by their country. Their father, Albert, says of them, an awful lot of people come onto Earth eat, work, and die, and never contribute anything to the world. If they die, at least they will have done something. Marion and Dolores, their letters are circulated in the newspapers beyond Belfast, beyond Derry. The press is drawn to these two young women. The Guardian publishes quotes like, Yesterday I got a real fright. The tubes seemed to block my windpipe and I couldn't breathe. With the wooden thing in my mouth, I couldn't speak. I panicked and pulled the tube up myself somehow. Many are just horrified, and rightfully so. A British magazine called The Spectator likens the practice to rape and the feeders to Nazis and child molesters. The National Council for Civil Liberties called it barbaric. The officers performing this task initially respond to the criticism flippantly. They insist that they're not going to let these women kill themselves. Dolores' teeth begin to loosen and decay, her hair, which was once a vibrant shade of red, is now pale and gray. She's become a shadow of her former self. Of the 208-day hunger strike, Marion and Dolores were force-fed 180 of them. Sometimes, they were force-fed twice a day. After nearly a year of torture, 
the British government finally bends to the public pressure, and Dolores and Marion are transferred to the Armagh prison in Northern Ireland to serve out the rest of their sentence. It's a small victory, but a victory nonetheless. The torture that they endured for over half of a year is not without consequence. Dolores and her sister are never the same, and they both develop severe anorexia. By 1981, Dolores has gotten so malnourished and sick that British authorities know she's going to die if she stays in prison. Her sister Marion was released a year before for the same reason. And British authorities are weighing their options to see what they can do with the de facto leader of the London bombing. After a thorough medical report and police evaluation, it's determined that Dolores is no longer a threat to the public. In fact, they believe that she would become a strong advocate against acts of violence and crimes of this nature. They think they've broken her. And to a degree, really, they have. Dolores sends letters to the prime minister, who's Margaret Thatcher at the time, asking for a pardon and lamenting that she's given up all of her 20s for nothing. And while Margaret Thatcher does not do anything, after eight years in prison, the British public finally softened their stance enough on Dolores' internment that in 1981, she is awarded the Royal Prerogative for Mercy, which is a humanitarian pardon direct from the monarchy. She is released from prison and returns home. Dolores Price remains a political activist for the rest of her life. In 1998, the British government reaches a treaty with the Irish government, and the period known as the Troubles comes to an end. Dolores, for her part, she sees this agreement as a complete failure by the IRA. Because in the end, they got nothing. None of her hard work, none of the blood spilled, none of the bombs set or her time served in prison made any difference for the fight in Ireland after all. Dolores will go on and get married. She'll have kids. And sadly, she dies in 2013. But she doesn't just, like, die. She gets found in her home at 61 because she's consumed a toxic amount of sedatives and antidepressants. And though the struggle between Ireland and Northern Ireland has been calm for two decades, recent events threaten to throw that delicate balance into chaos. Ever since the UK left the European Union in 2016, the border has become more restricted than it has been since that Good Friday agreement. Ireland is still in the European Union. And now that the UK has left, the idea of a hard border against trade and travel has grown more inevitable. And that goes completely against the ideals of the peace that ended the troubles. So if a new agreement isn't reached soon, Ireland might just be ready to pull out their guns again. Hard story to tell. Hard story to tell. A lot of loss. Not a lot of winners Whew. in this story. I do want to make a note that the IRA is actually classified as a terrorist organization. Um, but to many, the organization is the only thing standing in the way of an unlawful occupation. And I'm not here to defend any actions, but rather I want to share the story of a woman who was caught up in all of it. And when we started making this podcast, we talked about how curious we were about what makes a person do these things, commit these atrocities, commit these crimes. And in doing the podcast thus far, we've covered mental health, we've covered vengeance, we've covered greed, but we haven't really discussed 
politics as a reason. And I think we can all agree that war has yielded far more deaths than any serial killer we've covered. Mm. The fight for land, the fight for freedom, the fight for rights, you know, I mean, is it worth it? And to many, it is. But that doesn't take away from the personal loss that's at stake in these moments. Yeah, that's exactly right. In the end, you have to be able to stand by your actions no matter the consequences, mm-hmm. um, at, by which I just mean to suggest that Dolores did all these violent things, and the thing that was going to make them worth it to her was the success of the IRA. And then when they surrender, she is then forced to look back and reflect on those choices she made. And I bet she was up nights thinking about driving that widowed mother of 10, mm. thinking about the man in the back seat that she was looking at the rearview mirror and seeing him and knowing where he was headed. And and it's at that point, it's like the end justifies the means. But what if the end doesn't end up the way you want it to? Right. She didn't question it while she was behind that wheel necessarily. Or even if she did, she was comforted by this higher cause. But now... Once they surrender, she really has to take stock of that in a different light and has to say, this is what I chose to do and for what. And there will always be a side in war where that is the case, where half of the war crimes committed, I don't want to say don't matter. I want to say they they don't solve anything. They don't progress the cause. You need to go in knowing that that could be the case. And if it is, would you be able to sleep at night? I think Dolores looked back at her life and she couldn't. She needed sleeping pills. She needed antidepressants. And in the end, she took so many that she went to sleep forever. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. The book Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe and a 2018 documentary entitled I, Dolores, which features a rare interview with Dolores Price herself. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.